Welcome to Built to Go, a van life program. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 190. We're going to talk about 10 winter camping realities. Are you ready for the snow? Are you excited about the snow? I am. Let's get out there, but do it safely. We're also going to talk about setting up an authenticator app for your 2FA needs. I will explain a tale from the road involving a crying woman in the Panama Canal and a product review of the Insta360 X12. They have the worst names ever, but they're kind of fun cameras. I'm going to talk to you about my experience with them. Anyway, welcome back. It has been a crazy few weeks here, and we're back with an actual normal episode and uh, I want to thank everybody involved with the past episodes where I wasn't involved and I want to thank all of you for sticking with me as we got through travel. I still haven't figured out the best way to handle podcasts while I'm traveling and your feedback is always welcome. So if you would like to tell me whether you liked having the guest host or you liked doing the group podcast or you like me just kind of making it work on a ship or wherever, go ahead and let me know at jeff at builttogo.com that's two T's, not three, not one. All right, let's dive right in here. Winter is coming. And I probably say that too much because I, I kind of like it. But uh, I, I actually love winter. I grew up in New England and we had a lot of snow and I enjoyed it. So some of my favorite memories of my childhood involved these massive blizzards where we had no school and we built snow forts and had a wonderful time. And I am very attracted to YouTube videos of people winter camping in their vans. You know, the people who go somewhere and get completely snowed in and they're somehow making it work in their van and... I love that idea. I've done it a few times. I spent a week winter camping up in Wisconsin and it was cold, but uh, I did it and I learned to make myself comfortable and I learned a bunch of things from doing that. And I've also done winter camping in tents, which is totally possible. I have been out camping at 10 degrees Fahrenheit. I know people do it a lot colder and there are things you can do to make yourself comfortable. But safety is an issue. Uh, this is one of those times where if you screw up badly, you could die. And well, I'd rather not have that happen because then I'd lose you as a listener. See, it's, it's always about me in the end. Uh, but anyway, let's get down here. Uh, I made a list because I like lists and this list is in no particular order. It's just the things that came up as I was going through this. So at number one, have an escape plan. Seriously, if you're going to go out somewhere and get snowed in because it's fun and I'm actually encouraging you to do that, have an escape plan. Have an idea of what you're going to do if your vehicle won't start, if your batteries die, whatever. How are you going to get out of there? Because if you can't get out, it's also likely people can't get in. So I would recommend that you don't go anywhere where you're too far away to walk to safety. Uh, and, and walking might be difficult too. consider that. I mean, if there's a few feet of snow in the ground, it's hard to walk. Don't be afraid to bring a sled with you or something that will help you get out of there. I have a tentative plan to go down to Tiki Bango land and camp there when the snow is super heavy. And yeah, I've got a few escape plans from there. I mean, I have a tractor I can use to like literally make myself a trail to civilization. And if I had to, I could walk to civilization. There's actually hotels I could walk to from there. So that's my escape plan. Make sure you have one too even if it's simply having a surefire way to contact somebody to come rescue you. It's really important. Number two, have a 
backup of everything. Uh, I, I have talked about my obsession with having backup things a lot. I have a backup water system, at least one. I have a backup battery system, uh, at least one. I probably have like four. You are going to want this if you're in this circumstance because a failure is much worse when you're winter camping than, say, when you're summer camping. Or say you're camping in a campground. Oh, no, my battery's dead. Uh, okay, I'll plug it in and charge it again. Or I'll start the engine and charge it up. Or I'll wait for the solar to catch up. Yeah, those things aren't as available in the winter. So have backups of everything. Bring a lot of extra water, even though if you're in the snow, you could make your own water. We'll talk about that in a minute. But have extra everything because stuff can go wrong. And battery really consider having a lot of extra battery because you're going to be relying on that battery a lot. Number three, bring a shovel. No, seriously, bring a shovel, some kind of shovel that you can actually do some real shoveling with. I mean, I have an emergency shovel in the back of my van, one of those military ones that folds up into 18 different shapes, and that will be very useful if I ever get stuck. I'll be able to dig things out with that. That's great. But if you're going to do the kind of winter camping where you're going to spend time outside the van, like in a campfire, you're going to want to have a real shovel, something you can move a lot of snow with. Because if there's three feet of snow out there, you're going to have to snow out like a little patio to spend time on and doing that with one of these little tiny shovels is going to take forever so i you know just pick up one of those plastic shovels and bungee cord it to your ladder or your roof or just throw it under the bed or whatever your circumstances heck just <laughs> proudly wrap it to the grill of your van and drive around with it <laughs> whatever you would like I think you're going to really want to have a shovel number four now you're going to be fighting the cold the whole time right but you're bigger enemy, believe it or not, is going to be moisture. You breathe out a lot of moisture, unless you're dead. But you don't want to be dead. So yes, you're going to breathe out a lot of moisture. Any pets you have with you are also going to breathe out a lot of moisture. Any cooking you do, more moisture. You get the idea. On top of that, you've got the condensation problem. No matter how well insulated your van is, there are going to be cold spots somewhere. And any moisture that hits those is going to freeze. So even if you put up the best reflectics in the world over the windows, some moisture is going to get behind that reflectics and cover your windows with frost, etc. There is no completely fighting this. It's, it's more of a management thing. And the way to manage it is more ventilation. You have to let some of that hot, moist air out. And this is counterintuitive because it's cold. You want to keep all the heat in. So you fire up your diesel heater or your buddy heater or whatever you're using for heat. And the thought of opening a vent at the roof where that heat's going to get out is horrifying. And yet that's exactly what you need to do because that's how the moist air is going to get out. And you really need to cut back on the moisture. I would recommend not, say, boiling a pot of spaghetti under these conditions. If you can help it, maybe cook outside if you can do that. Uh, if you have one of those portable butane stoves, if you keep the butane in the van so it doesn't freeze, you should be able to use that outside. Sometimes during use they freeze. You'll have to experiment with that. Have a backup. But... Yes, moisture is your enemy. Try to keep it out of the van. Also consider that if you've relied on solar panels all summer long, let's say you have 300 watts of solar on the roof and 200 amp hour battery and you never had any problem with battery life, yeah, you're gonna now. <laughs> Not 
only is the snow going to cover your panels, which you're going to have to remove. See that shovel once again. But the sun isn't up as much, and also the sun is at a very much lower angle. So you're getting less solar even at noon on a perfect day in the winter. You're not going to be able to charge your batteries the same way you could in the summer. And you have to consider this. So what are you going to do? How else are you going to charge your batteries? Are you going to be in a campground where you can hook up? Great. Are you going to run the engine to charge your batteries, which I normally don't recommend, but in an emergency situation, absolutely. If you're going to do that, absolutely make sure that you leave all your exhaust ports clear. Back to the shovel again. Make sure the exhaust pipe has a giant hole where it can exhaust outside underneath the van. One of the risks of winter camping is that exhaust gases will get trapped under the van and then will get into the van through whatever holes you've made. Make sure your exhaust for your diesel heater and your engine get well and far away from the van. And some people even bring pipes just for this. They'll bring very large kind of drainage pipes and let the exhaust go into those and then they know it's getting away from the van. This is not a small issue. I know exhaust isn't as dangerous as it used to be because we have all this emissions control now, but it's still dangerous, so don't take that lightly. Number six, your feet are going to be cold. <laughs> There's a thing that happens in vans, it's called temperature stratification, that your heat is going to rise to the ceiling and the floor is going to be cold. And every van's floor is cold. I don't care how much insulation you put in there, the floor is cold. The only case where that isn't true is if you have installed hydronic heat, which is pipes underneath the floor that are filled with a hot liquid, usually propylene glycol, something like that. Sometimes ethylene glycol because it's connected to the engine. It depends on how you did it. But if you're not one of those very fortunate and very few people, your floor is going to be cold. Plan for that. Rugs, slippers, warm socks, those are your reality in the winter. Also, consider where you're sleeping in the van. If you're going to sleep on the floor because you have a no-build, you're going to be a lot colder than if you can raise yourself up on a cot. And those people who have built the bed on, over a garage that have like three feet of space between the bed and the ceiling, you're going to be the warmest. The temperature stratification can be mitigated somewhat if you have fans, but in my experience winter camping, it, you can't overcome it completely. The ceiling is always going to be a lot warmer than the floor. And the reason we don't experience this that much in houses is because our ceilings are much higher. We're dealing with much more volume and the air mixes differently. So just be aware of that. You're going to have weird issues where you might be too hot in bed, but it's like 30 degrees on the floor. And if you have pets, don't forget they're living in a different level than you are. <laughs> but you can also use the cold. Use what resources you have, right? So if you have any refrigerated goods, if they're frozen goods, put them outside. I mean, you can just put them in a cooler outside your van and they'll be cold. <laughs> the cooler's not gonna keep them warm. Cooler's very quickly gonna let all that hot air out and they'll be cold. The only reason you're really putting them in the cooler is to keep them safe from animals. So yeah, you've got free freezing and refrigeration. If you are using your refrigerator in your van, like I would, a nice trick is to get containers of water and put them outside till they freeze and then put them in your refrigerator and then keep swapping them out. This will save you a lot of power from your refrigerator. And remember, saving power is critically important in the winter. Uh, not only from everything I just mentioned, but also consider you have less hours of light. So you're gonna have the lights on more too. Another thing you can use the cold for, and, and this is weird, <laughs> but hear me out. This is an old Boy Scout trick. If you have something wet, 
that you need to dry, uh, you can let it freeze and beat the ice crystals out of it. Like let's say you have a, a completely wet pair of socks. Leave them outside, let them freeze, and then you can just beat on them and the ice crystals will come out of the socks, at least somewhat. It's a way to dry clothing that you may not have thought of. And I've heard people do this, I'm not sure this really works, but if you get too much moisture in your van, you just turn off the heat, let everything freeze, and then you can just scrape the ice out and throw it outside the van. I mean, any ice you remove, you're removing water, right? I'm not sure that's a great strategy, but it's a thing, so I'll mention it. <laughs> Number eight, antifreeze can be your friend in certain circumstances. So let's be clear once again. RV antifreeze, the pink stuff usually, is called propylene glycol. It's a food additive. It's completely safe. Don't worry about it. You don't want to drink it. You might get diarrhea if you drink it, but uh, it's not going to hurt you otherwise. If you have systems that need to not freeze, go ahead and fill them up with the RV antifreeze. You know, if you have a water system that you're not going to use because you're not sure the tanks can handle the winter, if you have anything underneath the van, yeah, go ahead and use the RV antifreeze. If you have parts that are non-potable, like water you're never going to drink with, such as a cassette toilet, you can fill those with window washer fluid. And this is how I have a toilet in my van in the winter, even if it freezes in there during the day. My cassette toilet, I've had a few just simple cassette toilets. Instead of putting water in there to flush with i put windshield washer fluid and it has worked great and you can just leave it in there when the summer comes too you just can replace it with water when the time comes it does two things it prevents it from freezing obviously but it also prevents the holding tank from freezing folks you do not want a frozen cassette toilet tank you don't want that <laughs> So make sure no matter what, you don't let it freeze. But you can use just cheap windshield washer fluid for things that are never, ever, ever going to come in contact with food or drinking of any kind. But what about food? And this is number nine, if you're counting. Uh, I recommend you don't buy anything in jars because they can freeze and shatter. Stick with cans because they, there tends to, honestly, there tends to be so much sodium in canned goods that they don't freeze. I haven't had a can freeze ever. <laughs> Soda accepted. Cans of fluid, that's another thing. Uh, sodas will freeze and explode and make your life absolutely miserable. Uh, beer also, but it takes uh, more time. Wine will freeze. All those things will freeze. So what I try to do is I stick to canned foods and dried foods, foods that I'm going to add water to. Oh, and you might ask, what about water? Well, I just use gallons of water. That's all I do. In the winter, I, you know, I turn off my sink and I just use gallons of water. And I, if I'm doing something during the day, like the time I was up in Wisconsin, I was actually in classes all day. I literally brought the gallon of water with me. In fact, I, I filled it up inside before I went up back out to the van. I didn't leave it in the van to freeze. So that's how I handle that. I did use the gray water tank though. I added some antifreeze to the gray water tank and then I would use it, you know, to brush my teeth or to drain something I was cooking or whatever. And then before I left the van, when I knew it was going to freeze again, I'd pour some more antifreeze down the drain and that filled the trap, which prevented any problems with freezing. But you do have to think about how you're going to deal with food and consider that it might freeze. That is, a, that is definitely something to plan on. On the plus side, you can have ice cream with no problems whatsoever. So go for it. <laughs> and number 10, try to spend some time outside. You're out in this winter wonderland, wherever you are, 
Try to enjoy it. Don't stay cooped up in the van the whole time. I mean, kind of, what's the point of that? Spend some time outside and consider what's going to happen after you spend a bunch of time outside. You're going to have wet clothes and wet boots. Have a way to deal with that. One common way I've seen is that people will have an inside set of clothes and an outside set of clothes, including the sacred socks, which are the socks that you only use for sleeping and nothing else. Those can add a lot of comfort in these situations. And some folks I've seen will take their outside clothes and put them in the front of the van. Like if you have a separation, if you have a partition, they'll use kind of the front of the van is a bit of a mudroom and keep that stuff outside the living area. I think that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, there's a ton more I could add here. You get it. Watch some more YouTube videos, but I'd like to encourage you to try some winter camping. Uh, and if you've never driven in the snow before, this is how people learn how to drive in the snow. They go to an empty mall parking lot and do stupid stuff so they can learn how their van handles. Do donuts, do fishtails, floor it, drive really slow, get a feel for how the van is, and be careful of hitting light poles and things like that. You really want to have nothing at all around you when you do this. But just about everyone I knew growing up in New England, this is how they learned how to drive in the snow. Okay, time to say some thank yous. It's been a while here. I have to say a big thank you to Big Rob for taking over and doing an episode a few episodes ago. He did a great job, and I was really happy knowing that I could just take that week and focus on other stuff, and the podcast would continue. So thank you, Big Rob. I'm going to mention you again later in the podcast. I also want to thank Blake, Robert B., and Kent for so generously donating to the show. If you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can visit buymeacoffee.com slash built to go and you can buy me a gallon of diesel, which is the little unit we have. And uh, if you do, you are eligible to receive an official Hook Waka Bang sticker, just like this. And new thing. <laughs> I also have pins. Now, this one's green. I don't have very many green ones, but you can also have a pin. All you have to do is make a donation and let me know at jeff at builttogo.com and give me your U.S. or Canadian address, and I will send you a pin and a sticker or just a sticker or just a pin or whatever the heck you like. And thank you very much. I do appreciate it. It prevents ads from being on the podcast, and that's really important to me. So thank you, everybody. Let's do a little bit of news. We haven't done that for a while. I've got three bits of news for you here. Number one. The Space Coast's only van life festival to take over Space Coast Daily Park in Vieira, Florida, January 27th and 28th. So, folks, if you want to do some winter camping in Florida, <laughs> where it's kind of cheating in my, my mind. I mean, it might go down to 60. Ooh. Uh, yeah, but you get the idea. But anyway, yeah, there's a big festival happening in Vieira, Florida, which is on the Space Coast. So that means up near Port Canaveral. Up near Cape Canaveral, I'm sorry. I'm thinking cruise language again. They are advertising it as the, the ultimate, ultimate van, van life, life experience. experience. And they have van tours, live music, workshops, all this kind of stuff. You can camp there. And uh, yeah, it looks like it might be a good time. Kids under 12 are free. General admission is only $20 per person. And that gives you access to the whole event for two days. Uh, anyway, I'll have a link in the show notes. Or you can visit them at vanfestusa.com. So if you're looking for a festival to go to on the East Coast, which is fairly rare, most of them are way out West, this might be the one for you. Next, um, you can buy a Rivian now, uh, a Rivian van. I mean, we, you know, you've seen the SUVs around and the pickup trucks. And uh, you've probably seen some of the reports that if you get into fender bender it's a forty thousand dollar repair bill that aside if you've looked at the amazon vans with the weird little glowy eyes and said "Ooh, that could make a good camper van 
Well, now for the modest price of $83,000, <clears> you can have one for yourself. And they come in two different sizes. The big question, of course, with an electric van is how many miles can you get out of them? And the answer is the little van does 160 miles on a charge and the bigger van does about 151 or so. So pretty comparable. From a van point of view, I think they'd be really nice to build out. They look very voluminous and they have decent cargo ratings. I totally think this could work, but of course, like all of you, I'm worried about the mileage thing. I know it's not uncommon for me to put 700 miles on my van in a day. I don't know how I would do that in one of these, but this is the beginning, folks. They're expensive, they have low range, but this is how we're going to get to where we need to be, say, 10 years from now, where we have electric vans that'll give us 400 miles, which I think is kind of the standard for this being normal. Anyway, I'll have a link in the show notes. Uh, Car and Driver talks about them, and it's $83,000, so the cost of a, an all-wheel drive Sprinter. Your choice. I, I found this weird little piece here that just reminded me of the everlasting power of the Ford E-Series vans, the Econolines. Now, they haven't made Econoline vans since 2014, but they still make the cutaway, which is the van front and then a, an RV on the back or a cargo box like a U-Haul or whatever. They still make those. They never stop making those. And in fact, Ford E-Series this year outsold ProMasters. <laughs> so they sold more Econoline vans than ProMasters this year. These things are never going away. And one of the great things about this is that if you have an old Econoline, you're never going to have to worry about getting parts. They're still making them. They haven't changed much, I can tell you. They look exactly the same as they did 10 years ago. So um, congrats to you, those of you with an Econoline. I know Big Rob has one. You're still in good shape. They're still current vans, even though you can't buy a new one that's just a van. I'll have a link in the show notes to the article from FordAuthority.com. Tech Talk. Here's a really wonky technical thing that I just want you to be aware of if you're in a situation like mine. I just came back from the Panama Canal cruise, which was awesome and everything, and I'm going to stick to van life for this, but I could talk for hours about that. It was a great trip. But I ran into a problem that could possibly affect you guys doing van life, and that is two-factor authorization. What is two-factor authorization, or 2FA? Well, it's becoming much more common. It's a thing where when you log into a website, like for your bank or Google or whatever, it asks you to verify that login, either by receiving an email or a text message. So I ran into this issue on the ship where I needed to have two devices connected in order to do this. For example, I'm at my computer, I log in, and 2FA comes up and it wants to send me a text message. I don't have anything to receive it on because my phone isn't connected because I'm trying to connect with the computer. So I got in this catch 22 where the only thing I could connect with was my phone, but I couldn't actually get the two FA messages on my phone until after I was connected, but I needed it to get connected. You see? <laughs> so what's the way around this? Well, there's a very simple way around this and it is using an authenticator app. There's a few of them out there. Google and Microsoft are probably the most common. I use Google. And it's an app that runs on your phone that doesn't need the internet. And all it does is give you six-digit numbers that expire every 30 seconds or so. I don't actually want to know what the number is. And you can ask Google or whatever to use 2FA through an authenticator app. 
And when you do this, it'll simply ask you for that six digit number. And so in my case, I logged into my computer, it asked me for the number, I pulled up my phone, looked at the number, typed it in and boom, I could get on with no problem. The key here is that authenticator apps don't need the internet. They're using an algorithm that just generates these numbers that is protected by all kinds of encryption. And that algorithm is also running on the servers that you're trying to log into. And they're always in sync. I remember back in the day at AOL for some really highly sensitive accounts, we used to have a little device we carried on our keychains that did this. Now it's simply an app on your phone. So if you're going to go on the kind of trip where you might have difficulty getting text messages or email or you need to log in through these captured systems, absolutely take a look at Google Authenticator and Google it. Just Google Google Authenticator, learn how it works, and then make sure that you can use it to log into your email and your banks and whatever else is important to you. It really saved my butt on this trip. Product review. So on this trip, I used my Insta360 One X2. Why did they name these like this? Insta360 One X2 360 camera, an awful lot. If you watched the video of episode 189 of this podcast, that's what I used to record that. It's a very strange video. It's a bunch of people sitting around a table and we're all talking about travel and stuff. And the camera kind of pans around from person to person as they speak. The way I did that was I just took one of these Insta, oh geez, Insta360 One X2 cameras and stuck it in the middle of the table. And then I did that all through editing. Now I'm not all that great at editing for this. <laughs> that video has a lot that could be criticized for sure, but it worked. And the idea is that these cameras record everything. You don't aim them. You don't focus them. You simply turn them on and they record the entire room. There's two lenses. Each one records about 190 degrees. When you add 190 and 190 together, you get 380, but you only need 360, right? It uses that overlap to make an incredibly invisible scene. Like the seams are just invisible. You can't see them. And it also allows you to put it on a selfie stick. And because of that overlapping, it erases the selfie stick. And actually, it doesn't erase it. It, it can't record it because it's underneath the camera where the lenses can't see it. Doesn't matter how it works. The bottom line is, is that you basically have a fake drone. I have a nine foot selfie stick. This thing's huge. It's made out of carbon fiber. And when I put the camera on top of that, it looks like there's a drone flying 10 feet overhead. And I can in editing, aim it wherever I want. See, that's the magic of this is you do it all in editing. The camera just, you turn it on, you do your thing, and then you come back into the editing software that's free from Insta360 and make it do whatever you want. You can zoom in, you can zoom out. If you zoom out all the way, you'll get that tiny planet effect where like somebody's walking on a planet. Anyway, I like this camera. <laughs> I do. Um, it's, it's, it's weird editing. It takes a lot of time and you really should embrace the software that comes with the phone if you want to use it for social media, because otherwise you're going to spend a lot of time figuring this out. If you want to make little clips like for Instagram or TikTok or whatever, the phone is really designed to do that. And it even has AI things like, tell me what you want to do. Uh, you know, it's like skateboarding scene. And if you've used this to record yourself skateboarding, it already knows what to do. It knows what to track. And then it'll zoom around your head and all this stuff. 
Now, the Insta360 ONE X2 is actually an older version. There's a new one that's an X3. From what I've seen, the stats are very similar. It does have a bigger screen, and it maybe has better water protection, which I'll talk about in a second. So, obviously, get the, get the newest one. I've got the X2. Makes the same videos in the end. It's not going to be your only camera, right? This is going to be an add-on camera for B-roll or some atmospheric stuff couple things about it that I don't like. It's not great in low light. You hear this a lot, and that's not too surprising. And it's hard to put down. <laughs> and not that because you want to use it all the time. No, it's hard to put down because it is... It looks like a remote control, a little remote control, like say for a Fire TV, with a bubble lens on either side of it, like on the front and the back of the remote. And the problem is those lenses are plastic. So if you lay the thing down on a table or something, the chances of scratching those lenses is really good. So you have to be very disciplined about covering the lenses. So I haven't had a problem so far. I have a little clippy snap-on cover, and that has worked pretty well. But you have to absolutely discipline yourself never to put it down. Like, on a beach or something? Ah, no. Sand will destroy that thing quickly. And one other complaint, and they may have fixed this. When I used this camera in Antarctica, I used it underwater because it's supposed to be good to 30 meters or something, you know, beyond where I'm ever going to go. And it got water in it and died. Uh, I had terrible luck with cameras in Antarctica, maybe because of the cold. The water I stuck it in was below freezing, even though it was still liquid. You know, it was like 30 degrees. Maybe that made the gaskets shrink. I don't know. But the waterproofing isn't perfect. My understanding is that it's better on the newer model. And when I sent mine in for repair, they sent me a new one for free with an extra battery, actually, as a, as a gift. So customer service is good, too. I'll have a link to these in the show notes. Uh, plenty of YouTube videos about them. It's a totally different way of doing camera work. And for people in vans, you could do all kinds of weird stuff, like put it on top of your van, and it's just like there's a drone flying around your van. I mean, or stick it in your van, and you can make videos in your van that you can zoom in and out and show your van or just you or whatever. And all at pretty reasonable quality. So that's the Insta360 ONE X2 or X3, one of the dumbest named products ever, but still pretty cool. Tales from the road. So we're going through the Panama Canal, as one does. <laughs> the ship we were on, which is called Serenade of the Seas by Royal Caribbean, is a Panamax ship. It fills up the entire lock when we're in it. It was built to the exact standards of the largest ship possible to fit through the lock, which was very common back in 2000 or so. And they're called Panamax ships because of that. So it takes a long time to go through the lock. So the, the entire canal takes about 12 hours and you go through three locks and then a big lake and then you go through another lock and then a couple more locks. And we were at the very end, the last locks, the Miraflores locks, just as we're heading into the Pacific Ocean. And they have a visitor center there. Now, we were not allowed to get off the ship. We sailed literally through Panama, but we did not get off the ship in Panama everywhere, <laughs> anywhere. We talked about that a lot last episode. But as we're going through, I noticed this grandstand with multiple levels on the side of the canal. It was filled with people, and they were all watching us. We were a tourist attraction. They all seemed to be locals. I could hear them speaking Spanish. I don't know what the deal was. And at the time, we felt like celebrities, even though we were on Royal Caribbean. Cruise humor there. Um, it turns out they do this all the time. This is a, a The canal is a tourist attraction. People just go to the canal to see ships go through. So that was interesting. But I noticed some people in a weird place. The canal is really 
two canals. All right, forget about the new canal for a second. That just complicates things. There's two canals. Ships go in, one to go up and one to go down at the same time. You've got the land, a lock, a space another lock, and then land again. So that space between the locks is kind of a no man's land. You know, you can't really just walk there. You literally have to walk across the top of the lock doors to get out there. So it's not publicly accessible. But there were some people milling about there, and I saw some of them had life jackets on, so I knew they were, you know, helping with the mules, the electric vehicles that towed us through there and stuff. But I noticed there was a woman, and this woman was dressed in civilian clothes, didn't have a life jacket on, and she had her hands up to her mouth and just 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 seemed very worried and i thought i could see tears in her eyes although i was pretty far away our ship was at the top of the lock and was sinking to get down to the pacific level and she kept scanning the deck particularly the front of the ship looking for something or i i was i'm like is the ship on fire or something is she noticing something terrible going on with the ship and i'm looking around and everybody's out there because it's the last lock and we don't know what's going on but something seemed terribly wrong and then an officer came out and he looked concerned and he he kind of forced his way up to the rail and he's looking over and he sees the woman and he clasps his hands to his face and then throws his arms wide in this massive hug and the woman reciprocates she does the same thing and then her tears suddenly are accompanied by a smile same tears totally different expression on her face and we didn't know what's going on but they started shouting back and forth to each other in spanish and i, I kept hearing some words you know like amour and in in, in hijo and things like that you know so i, I kind of figured out what was going on from the context but not entirely somebody else in our group actually talked to the officer and found out that this young officer on our ship was from Panama and he was stationed on the ship for like a six month contract and he hadn't seen his mother in months and she knew he was coming through the canal. So she got special permission to go in that kind of no man's zone to see her son sail by. It was a really just kind of a sweet little real moment. Um, it reminded us passengers how lucky we are that we can do this for fun. There's other people working here and their lives are severely restricted because they're working on a ship. And just that little tiny bit of connection where they were so close to each other, especially as the ship lowered in the lock, because at that point, I mean, they were maybe 30 feet from each other when we got down to the lowest part. And of course, as soon as we got to the lowest part, the doors opened and we sailed away and then she wouldn't see her son again until well as it happens next week because the ship is going to turn around in la and go right back through the canal and i imagine that scene will be repeated although instead of six o'clock at night it'll happen at six o'clock in the morning we understand that gentleman's getting off the ship in not too long and he'll be able to go home and spend some real time with his mother for the holidays which we think is wonderful but it was just one of those nice moments that you can experience traveling if you just kind of pay attention to the little human dramas going on all around you and uh, it's one of my favorite things. A place to visit. All right, this is kind of a cheat. It's not a place, it's a podcast. <laughs> I was asked to be a guest on a podcast called Treasures of Our Town. And ostensibly, this podcast is dedicated to geocaching. But in reality... It's about travel. It's about experiencing the traveling life. And whether you're traveling for geocaching or for whatever reason, heck, this podcast is a lot of fun. 
I've listened to a bunch of episodes. I intend to listen to them all. And basically, they interview people about travel and geocaching and things like that. And I was honored to be their guest in the most recent episode. I'll have a link in the show notes. They wanted to talk to me about you know, my life a little bit and how my experience with geocaching, which I talked about, but also my Aurora's trip. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know that I visited every Aurora in North America, some of them twice. I still have a hard time talking about that trip for a number of reasons, but I actually talk about it more on their podcast than I ever have anywhere else. And, um, well, I don't know. I think the podcast came out really well. And it's about 67 minutes long or so. But I think if you listen to this podcast, you're going to love their podcast just in general, whether I'm on it or not. So give it a listen. There's a link in the show notes. It's Treasures of Our Town. It's, uh, it's, it's basically a YouTube star and a guy from Australia who are friends, who have this passion, and it really comes through in the podcast. Give it a listen. It might... Just be another podcast to put in your quiver. Resource recommendations. So all the savvy content creators at this time of year create shopping lists to tell you about all the wonderful things you can buy for Christmas and such. And uh, I'm not that organized. I'm also not that profit motivated. <laughs> I mean, sure, I could make some money if I put a bunch of affiliate links and said, here are the best products of 2023 for Christmas. I'm just not going to do that. Um, but other people have done it for me, so I don't have to. Big Rob has made a list like this, and I watched it, and he has some really good ideas for products on there. In fact, I got an idea from there that I'm going to actually use in the next episode. But um, give it a watch. I mean, Big Rob was so nice to help me out for the podcast. The least I can do is to recommend that you watched where he recommends all these items for van life just in time for Christmas. And some of them were things I'd never heard of and are, are excellent. So it, it's well worth doing. I will add this though. If you are looking to buy something for someone doing van life for Christmas, try to have it not be a physical object. Buy them a year of Amazon Prime, buy them a year of Netflix, buy them a SIM card if they're going to travel internationally, something along those lines, something not material, because they don't have space for material stuff. My mother-in-law, who is wonderful, always buys me great clothes, and if I lived in the van full-time, that would not work out so well, because I'd have a whole bunch of wonderful clothes that I wouldn't ever want to get rid of, but I'd have no space to put them. So... Anything like that, subscriptions, even gift cards. You know, a McDonald's gift card can really come in handy sometimes. Things like that. It's just a thing that people will really appreciate. An Audible, an Audible subscription. There's another great idea. A subscription to Autio, A-U-T-I-O, which is a great app for learning about the world as you travel through it. Things like that make a lot of sense. But for yourself, if you are looking for some physical objects, check out Big Rob. Link in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening to episode 190. It's good to be back in the saddle again, but I'm not going to be here long. I have another epic trip coming up in two weeks, and I'm going to turn it into a bit of a contest. So stay tuned. Next week, I will talk about that. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Anamika Mishra, who says, Winter is not a season, it's a celebration. <laughs>